Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is a Thanksgiving week edition, and you know what Thanksgiving week means. At TigerIllustrated.com all week and into the weekend, we have got you covered. Wall-to-wall analysis, insight, information about this game, injury stuff. Perfect time to come aboard and join the best information source of Clemson football anywhere. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Upstate foodies, want to take a moment to talk to you about our favorite taco spot, Willie Taco. Five locations across the upstate. This award-winning team has been serving up fresh taco fusion for a solid decade now. The chefs at Willie Taco utilize the freshest, most creative, and sometimes unexpected ingredients in their kitchens. Come see why Southern Living, Garden and Gun, and Food and Wine Magazine are raving about Willie Taco and their signature offerings, such as their Southern Tide, Crispy Avocado, Nashville hot chicken tacos, literally flavors you will not find anywhere else, folks. And don't forget about the cocktails, super fresh margaritas, ice cold cerveza, and over 80 tequilas served up daily from behind the bar. So don't wait, folks. Your Willy Taco Familia is ready to serve you up their twist on funky fresh fusion. It's the Willy Way. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions. Simplified payments, they make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, all I got to say is anytime you have Ellis Johnson on the phone, it's going to be good. And this is uh, no exception. Here we go. Enjoy. All right, joined by Ellis Johnson, who is uh, no stranger to the Clemson-South Carolina rivalry. How you doing, sir? Doing fine, Larry. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Um, as we were talking yesterday, catching up a little bit, this is your fifth year out of coaching, I believe, but it sounds like you're pretty busy. You were you were going over all your schedule of interviews and podcasts and this and that, and I'm like, man, this this guy's like a becoming kind of a a, a media celebrity out there. <laughs> not quite, not quite that, but it has been a lot of fun. Uh, when I first got through coaching, and I kind of I don't really don't feel like I've coached since the 2014 season because I did a couple of years of analyst work with uh, Coach Muschamp, but I really wasn't involved with players at all. Uh, so you know, I feel like I've been out longer than that. But these uh, radio spots and some podcasts kind of keeps you in the game a little bit. And uh, of course, I watch football. I don't watch it as much as people would think I do. But uh, it's been a lot of fun doing these little radio spots and podcasts. What is the process of 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 moving past that daily fulfillment and grind of 
having a group of kids to coach and nurture and develop. Can you tell me about what that what that was like for you as you got used to that over the years? Well, what a great question. I was talking to somebody the other day. First part of it, you know, you have a hard time uh, deciding that you that you want to go ahead and quit or retire. And I remember talking to Coach Dye one time when I was still at Auburn. He would come in on Sunday mornings when we were grading film. And one day I just finally asked him, I said, Coach, you miss it. Do you, you wish you hadn't got out? He said, no, no, no. He said, you're going to have this decision one day. He said, it's not going to be whether you miss it or not. He said, you never quit if that was the question. He said, you've got to reach a point where you can live without it. And it, and it really was the best way to describe it because it's such a fun fun profession in most ways that you don't ever want to quit. But it's a pretty taxing uh, on the pro and the college level, it's a pretty taxing schedule with the number of hours and so forth. And, and it reaches a point where you, you know, you just want to do other things. It's more mental than physical. You, you reach a point where you want to put your time in other things and uh, do some things before it's too long, too late. Uh, I guess the other thing, uh, I do miss the most uh, thing I miss the most is the players. I didn't, I didn't know that would be the case when I got out, but it is the thing I missed the most. And when I went back from Muschamp, I was doing analyst work and was still able, you know, to dabble with X's and O's. And that kept me, kept me busy and, and I was interested in it. I still love to look at it, but, but it isn't what I missed. What I missed were the players. And so I didn't have any contact with them much. In that job, I just decided to go ahead and hang it up. Speaking of the analyst role, there's, I guess, to the casual observer, like most fans, kind of a murky title. They're like, well, what, what does he actually do? And, and honestly, my answer most of the time, like, you know, Chad Morris is back here. He's in an analyst role. But if somebody asks me, okay, what are his responsibilities? What exactly does he do? I kind of draw a blank because <laughs> I really don't. No, can you maybe just from your experience as an analyst um, give people an idea of what your daily routine was, what your responsibilities were? You said X's and O's, but I'm just curious to maybe get a, a, a deeper deeper grasp of that. Yeah, well, another great question because first of all, when the when the positions were first allowed or established by the NCAA, there were restrictions on it, and you were not supposed to directly coach a player on the practice field, nor at a game on the sideline. You weren't supposed to have headsets on making any kind of actual game adjustments and so forth. And I think there were some limitations to I mean, you could have. But what happened is people started hiring them and just calling them secretaries. And and so there really was no limit. I think finally, and I, this has been since I've been out, I think finally the NCAA just said, you know, we're not going to govern that. We are going to govern the grad assistant positions. Can't have the four. And, uh, but the analysts, I mean, if you want to hire 10 of them, hire 10 of them. You want to hire 20, hire 20. If you want them to coach the tight end, let them coach the tight end. If you want them to just, uh, you know, put dummies out on the field every day, let him put dummies out on the field. It has really reached that point. My personal experience, uh, even when I was doing it, there are a lot of younger analysts that were actually assisting a position coach and, and helping in drills and coaching players and, and uh, making uh, sideline adjustments, correcting the player when he came off the field. I couldn't do any of that because I had coached at South Carolina 
and I would have stood out like a sore thumb. The first question a media uh, beat, beat writer would have asked is, what's, what's Coach Johnson coaching out there? Is he helping with the safeties or the linebackers? But, you know, because they would have known I wasn't a grad assistant and I wasn't one of the nine. So I, I could not do a lot of these things, but some of the younger guys did. Now I think it's open season. So if somebody asks you what Chad's doing, that's up to Dabo. Yep. And, and I would imagine he's using him to evaluate and do some things offensively. My basic two jobs were to self-scout our offense after each game on film and give Coach Muschamp a report, an offense coordinator report, on what I saw as a defensive coordinator that I would do uh, in preparation for playing in the next week, that I pick up any weaknesses, that I, you know, see some things that were really giving some people some trouble or there's some things that we're not doing that you think we ought to do that would be hard to adjust to. And and uh, I think, I hope it was very helpful. Uh, and then the second thing was to stay a couple of weeks ahead on opponents, and I would just break down their offenses and make any notes that I thought, you know, would be good. It was kind of a kickstart for them on Sunday evening when they started on the next opponent. And when would your self-scout typically need to be done by to give to them? I gave all of it to them on Sunday evenings, maybe oh. some on Monday. We, we, we practiced on Mondays uh, very light and then had uh, Monday, excuse me, Sundays, and then Monday was a preparation day. You know, some people uh, give the players off on Sundays, and Sunday is a big, long preparation day for the coaches. They clean up the game, uh, they just played, and they start working on the next opponent. Other, other teams like to bring them in on Sunday, have a light workout, walk through corrections, and the next day they, they spend all their time working on the next opponent and the players don't come in. So it's whichever way you want, want to work it. And uh, so it was by Sunday evening or sometimes on Monday you wanted to review it. So at the actual games, are you up in the box? I was. And I had a headset. I did not intervene very much. Having been a coordinator, I did not think – and I told Coach that I said, I'm not going to sit there and, and chirp in, you know, every two or three plays. I, it would drive me nuts if I was trying to call defense. I'll talk, I'll talk to them between plays on anything that I've got that I think, you know, they're not seeing. And then on, I, I presume that Sunday was your, that was your day to really, really grind away and work on, on providing those, the self scout and also the future scouts. Well, the, the primarily the self scout because I've you know, I'd had the film obviously, and I, I spent a lot of time on that as quickly as I could. The future scouting I could do that all during the week because I would have films on on teams that we were going to play down the road. That's one of the the, uh, the beauties of technology. You know, you've got everything online now. You used to have to physically swap that stuff. Then it got to where you could, uh, you know send it online, but now it's gotten to the point where everything's put online and all you have to do is just tell your film guy, pull up pull up uh, NC State and I'd have it two or three weeks ahead and I'd go ahead and start breaking them down for the previous games. And it would leave them one or two games, you know, that I had not gotten to, usually just one. And and they were going to be sitting there on Sundays grinding on it anyhow. And they, you know, they'd have my notes in front of them. It was helpful. But frankly, uh, 
you really have to kind of know what the coordinator and the head coach, what their system is, their scheme is, and how they like to attack things. Because I would notice things sometimes that in my system, <clears throat> it was important to me. Uh, one thing I always looked for was how much the other team varied the snap counts. Because I was a big uh, shift and disguise person before the snap of the ball. Uh, we felt like it was very important in our system of defense that we we shifted fronts quite a bit. And it's, it was a pretty vulnerable front to the run overall. And, and our athleticism and the, and the type of players we played up front made it that too. So we had to do a lot of shifting and other things. And so I always studied the snap count real closely to see whether there was a rhythm to it we could take advantage of, uh, setting up the timing of a blitz or hiding the coverage, or shifting the front, and, you know, catching them in a situation where they couldn't check or adjust to it, that wasn't as big a deal to them. So I don't know how much they used it. They did do some of that, but it wasn't that much based on the timing of the quarterback's mechanics. So that was just one example of things that, you know, they didn't really need it that much. Any scouting of the opposing defenses? Every now and then, he said, watch them. Tell me what you think they're doing. It might be somebody that looked a little bit like what we used to do, but I did not do that on a systematic basis. So you were an analyst from 16 to 18, I guess those, those three seasons, and that just so happens. Just two. I'm sorry. Okay. Just, yeah, just two, 16, 17. 16, 17. Curious yeah. uh, what the – obviously those years corresponded with Clemson – just really taken off um, from really, really good to great, um, bordering on dynasty level. What was the scout like on Sundays when you, um, when you, you're I guess six days away from from facing Clemson's offense? What what do you like? How do you break it down to the coaching staff? Like, is it like yeah, you go? We're gonna have our hands full with Deshaun and Mike Williams and just the laundry list of weapons they had on those offenses. Well, I'm trying to remember the years. I, I don't remember breaking down uh, Watson. Uh, maybe I did, but I don't remember that. And I definitely remember Trevor. And uh, I mean, it was just obvious. You didn't have to tell him anything. I mean, everybody's stats were out of the roof by that time of the year. And and they, they had really good skill people, too. Uh, you you could uh, – they could play a game. In fact, I, they were 21 points on the board against Alabama in the national championship game and, and hadn't blocked anybody up front. <laughs> they, they'd intercepted a pass running in on a pick six, and they threw two balls over their head, and the game was about over. And they hadn't <laughs> had to block anybody. I mean, they obviously were pass protected. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I hate to say it. I don't remember that. Now, I saw him play. And and I, I remember how very how good he was. I mean, really turned the program around. And I'll put it I'll put it on another gear, if you will. But I don't remember breaking film on him. Uh, you could refresh my memory. Maybe he was quarterback in sixteen. But uh, yeah, he was. I thought it was Trevor. Yeah, it was. It was, it was Deshaun in sixteen, and then Kelly Bryant in seventeen, and then in eighteen was when Trevor took over early in the season as a freshman. Well, it's it's basically entirely opposite then, you know. Uh, I, I must have broken some down with Sean and, and not Trevor. And to be honest with you, I mean, Watson was 
fantastic player, but he wasn't as dominant as Trevor was. Right. And and I think I think uh, Trevor had ATN in the backfield at the, at the time too. It just made it almost impossible to take everything away. Uh, if you tried to play them uh, in a manner, I mean, some of the two or three best teams in the country could line up and try to do it. But I, my, you know, my philosophy on it would have been to let them have what they want between the twenties. We spent a lot of time on the red zone. We've got to make some things. We got to get some takeaways, et cetera, and just try to minimize the uh, the, the amount of points they're going to score. Of course, they were good on defense too, and and Brett played a style that it was you know he'd take chances. He was very aggressive, and so it was a it was a quick turnaround one way or the other for the offense being back out there, and that just wore defenses down on the opposing side even more so. When you're in the Clemson bubble during that stretch, six straight playoff appearances. Four national title appearances, obviously two national titles in three years. A sense sort of develops of of maybe, uh, oh, this is uh, this is how it's just going to be from here on out, and you don't really appreciate in the moment as much as people do now, of course, just how many stars had to align with generational quarterbacks: Trevor, Deshaun, generational running back Travis Etienne. Uh, honestly, generational defensive uh, tackles in Dexter Lawrence, uh, Christian Wilkins, others. Um, you've been here and you've been around uh, successful programs. What do you, what do you make of that? Just sort of the, I mean, it had to. It's it's not something you recognize probably in the moment um, when you just think that playoff appearances are your birthright, and it takes some adjusting of those expectations over the successive years. What are your observations into that, into just how Clemson is having to deal with the reality of late the last few years of, oh, not every five-star quarterback is going to be like Trevor Lawrence or Deshaun Watson. And no, we're not going to have that amazing collection of talent that we had uh, during that run. Well, I, I think I think they do have a, a extremely good uh, collection of talent this year. Yeah. I think they've been better than every team they've lined up against, frankly. I mean, that's my that's my opinion. They, they should have won every game they played this year, but they turned the ball over. And that's, that's part of the game, don't get me wrong. But as far as talent and people playing the game, they should have won every game they played. Uh, even the Florida State game, they made two or three critical mistakes with football and when they had control of the game and, and let the game slip away. But even Dabo, Dabo understands this. You, you know, I think one thing that was really unique about those two quarterbacks, uh, they were they were pretty low location-wise, they were pretty close in proximity to Clemson. They probably came to the campus several times. You know a little bit more about them when they're that close. You know, Trevor's in the Atlanta area and Watson just right across the state line. And and so they probably knew those kids and they had more time with them. And and it's not impossible to make a a great signee uh, from a long distance, but it's a little harder to have that relationship, that knowledge about their background and everything about them. So I, I really think that has a lot to do with it. I go back to our great years we had here at South Carolina when we had that run, and and the vast majority of our dominant players were in-state kids. And I don't think there's ever been a period of three or four years in a row 
well, there were that many uh, kids that good in the state of South Carolina, and we got 90% of them, and that's how we that's how we brought it up to another level. Those things don't happen all the time. And, you know, he made a comment the other day. Uh, I think it was when they had lost their third game, maybe. And he, he said, you know, we went through a season like this, wins and losses. And he said the year, and I don't remember what which year it was. It was the last time they won nine games. And he was talking about being like three and four or something like that early in the season and how they came back and won nine games. And he said, but that team – was probably about a nine-win season. He said, this team is better, and we haven't made made the plays, and we haven't taken care of the football. And I think he was probably accurate. He he has a football team this year that talent-wise could play with those guys. They weren't as good as those two national championships. Don't get me wrong, but they could definitely play with those guys. And this team can play with anybody in the country uh, if they quit beating themselves. So that's one of the big factors, but you, it goes the the main part of the question that, that is so important in today's football. If you don't have a quarterback, whether he was a three star or a five star or a ten star coming out of high school, not it's not unimportant, but it doesn't mean they're going to be great players or not be players. But they better play when they get into college level. They have to play at a five star level if you're going to have any chance to play at the top level in the country. I guess the greatest example would be Georgia. They just won two back-to-back national championships. And Stetson Bennett's not playing for anybody now. He might be on a roster. He might be the scout team quarterback for a pro team. But he's not a five-star quarterback. They won two national championships in a row with great players all around him. So it's not only the quarterback. But it is. he was a winner. And around those, those players... He was a machine. I mean, the kid was a great player, but he wasn't a great talent. And so it's, it's you know, there's a lot of things about it, but the style of football everybody's playing today, you got to have space players and, and, and guys that can, can go the distance when they get that chance. Clemson's got some, but they're not consistently hitting it, and they're not quite the level they've had during that, that say, that five- to eight-year run. I didn't know until yesterday – Ellis, and I guess this makes me a bad reporter if I cover Clemson and your son is on the team as a walk-on, Charlie Johnson, and I don't even know about it, so I apologize for that. <laughs> um, what is that? Well, that's kind of like when they hired me at Citadel to come back and be the head football coach, and they, they brought out a jersey with number 40. And the first thing I told them, I said, somebody around here is either a really good Citadel fan or y'all had to do some deep research to know what my number was. <laughs> Nobody, half the people in this room don't know I went to the <laughs> But he's he's enjoyed it. He, he absolutely loves it. Uh, I, the biggest thing, it sounds crazy, but uh, when he asked me if he could you know, walk on at Carolina or Clemson, he had a couple of other offers, smaller schools. And I said, well, you have to understand you may not play as much if you play ever. And this, you know, that's up to you. So, the, but when I, when I was, most pleased is I know about half of that staff up there I either coached with or coached, either at Alabama or at Clemson. And I know who they are as people. And I've never felt more comfortable dropping a kid off of school and leaving him with a bunch of men and other folks too that I think the world of. And, and so he's, he loves it. He's gotten in one game. That's all. I think it's Florida Atlantic. 
Uh, he dresses out all the home games. But he has really enjoyed the experience. And Coach Sweeney, he treats the walk-ons with a lot of respect and treats them fairly. They have access to all the academic tutoring and, and uh, study hall stuff, which is very important. And then they have, you know, they have full run of the training room. I mean, the uh, training table, the, the meals and all that kind of thing. So he makes them a, a critical part of the team. And, and I think he really enjoyed his experience. And if maybe one day he'll get to play. He's a good athlete, but on that level, you got to be a great athlete. So hopefully one day, maybe work into playing some, we'll just have to see. But he is in good hands, and I've been happy with his, his situation there, and I think he's, he's excited. He's a freshman who played at Ben Lippin. What would have been his other options had he not chosen the walk-on route at a major school? He had a scholarship at Citadel, and uh, I think they probably listened to some of my jokes about my days there. Not, they didn't want to go to military school. Uh, I would have made him go if it was the only scholarship he had, except I would not make the kid go to the Citadel. If you want to go there, it needs to be your decision. And most of the kids I recruited there, if their parents told them they had to go there, we had trouble keeping them there. You know, they always wanted to quit, but the ones that made their own decision, they stuck it out and, and, and finished. But I wasn't going to demand it to go. Every time I get the tuition bill, I kind of think I made a bad decision, but, <laughs> but I think he's in good hands. But uh, he had a couple of other one AA offers. Uh, most of those, you know, on that level are partial and uh, part scholarships. But he really wanted to walk on at South Carolina or Clemson, and I knew he was good enough to help the team. Uh, he's he's that good of athlete. He'd be a a big help, you know, as a scout team player. Maybe one day get get to play a little bit as a backup player. Uh, but uh, it you know it was the first time Dabo you know told me earlier that he had a spot. South Carolina never said anything, and so he 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 visited both places, and that's where he wanted to go anyhow. That's where he wanted to go anyhow. Why? He was just kind of he really was impressed with it. You know, he wasn't, wasn't visiting a bunch of schools through the ninth and 10th grade. He wasn't a big-time recruit. He's been around big-time football, obviously, as a child. And he's been in both places, not as a, you know, he, he was, most of his years he remembers are South Carolina and Auburn. But he had been to Clemson before, but never to a ball game. So when he went up there, he just really liked it. Had a lot of friends that had gone there. And uniquely, both of his grandfathers, uh, were 1937 grads of, of Clemson. So he's heard his mom and me talk about Clemson a lot over the years. And so when he visited and got to go watch the games and all that, he, he really just loved it. And, you know, actually coming in there as a walk-on candidate, I'm sure some of my friends, but they would visit with him and talk with him and everything. And he felt wanted. You know, he felt like you know they knew who he was. And he was excited about joining the program. When you're an assistant, when you're in the coaching profession and you bounce around to different schools, back and forth between rival schools, Auburn, Alabama, um, you're, the loyalty, I guess, goes about as far as the paycheck um, that you're <laughs> that you're getting, Perfect. and you and you have a. Typically, coaches have much more of a clinical view of of, of things when it, it's a business. I mean, that's just the way it is. Maybe maybe similar to to media uh, in that respect. I'm curious though, 
for children of coaches who 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 bounce around and who go to all these different schools, what is that like? What was was Charlie a, a big fan of either school, or is he maybe get as he got older, did he take a more clinical view, maybe that 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 a, that a coach typically has? But you you hit it on the head. I mean, as a child, he would get into wherever we were, you know, and all that good stuff. But as he got an opportunity to go, wanted to go play somewhere, and then he, he asked me if he could try to play on Power Five level, and it was more about just picking a place where he was happy. And like I said, of all the schools we've been to, he wasn't even born. I wasn't married when I was at Clemson, and uh, he, you know, he never saw it. I don't think he went to any of our games when we traveled up there because of his age. Uh, I don't think he did. He didn't remember ever going. So it was just kind of, I guess, you know, like you said, it was more clinical when he decided where to go. And he, he grew up being a Mississippi State man because he was born there. And and so he would always have his Mississippi State jersey on under some other jersey where we were. Uh, he Charlie was kind of funny. I've got an oldest son. He's not as good an athlete as Charlie. He's a pretty good little high school baseball pitcher. But he had a he had the mentality. Of a, of a competitive athlete and like even when he was coming through Little League if he was getting ready for a game he'd have his uniform laid out and he'd be you know getting ready to go about 40 minutes before we had to leave if Charlie had a ball game we'd have to go get him off the skateboard or off the pontoon and tell him he's going to be late <laughs> for the game and this was it, that wasn't he, he did things when it was time to do things and wasn't going to think about it until it was time and he never thought he was very good because he was four years younger than the other one. And the other one could always beat him at everything. So the oldest one thought he was the best athlete. He wasn't close. And I could see it because I've watched it, you know, for 40 years. I've watched kids. But uh, he was just a funny, a funny character. And he still is a little bit like that. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experienced team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parham, Smith & Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Its office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. What is your... Oh, man, this is a this is a... A uh, complex question, but your your feeling or take on the state of uh, what it's like to be a college coach right now? Because on one hand, I'm sympathetic to to coaches because I'm around them. I've seen how 
much they have to work now because of the portal, because of having to recruit guys who are on your roster <laughs> to keep make sure they don't leave. All of these different variables that are here that probably weren't there traditionally. But then I also can understand people who say, <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't feel sorry for him because guys like Jimbo Fisher just got a 70-something million dollar payday to do nothing. Will Muschamp got 15 million, whatever it was, guaranteed. The money involved in it sort of, um, they're well compensated for the extra time. What What is your take on just based on your experience and also your vast number of connections on sort of the pulse of what it's like to be a college coach today? Well, two, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the money is, it is even as long as hours they work, the money is in most cases, it's ridiculous. Uh, I think it's almost ridiculous. I don't know if that's the best word, but it's, it's going to end up damaging college football in general, paying players. Uh, it's getting ready to blow up from the standpoint of having any kind of control of it. And I don't know why anybody didn't have enough sense to see it coming this way. Uh, and, and But I don't, But the last two groups I blame for all this is the coaches and the players. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, I don't want that money. You know, I don't, I don't <laughs> need it. That guy at the other school could have it. <laughs> so, you know, that's the first thing. But Overall, the things that are going on with salaries and the NIL and the portal, now you, you, about 40 schools are going to end up loving this in about five years. And the rest of college football, it's just, it's just going to be average as it can be. They're going to be in turmoil all the time, firing coaches every three or four years. Uh, eventually, they're not ever going to be around the national playoffs. It's going to look a lot like when I was a child, and I'm a lot older than you. But when I was growing up in the, in the – uh, late 50s and early 60s, at Clemson, Carolina, they, they played anybody in the Big Ten or the Big Eight. you go ahead and scratch up a 50-point loss. And I don't know why they played them because it wasn't big paychecks for them or anything. TV changed everything. And, and I mean, probably half of the listening audience don't, say, don't know what I'm talking about. But TV changed everything. Back when, you know, when I was a kid, there were like two college games on a week, if that. Sometimes just one. And, and so schools were run by booster money and by their state legislators or their donors or whoever else. And uh, it's just it's a whole different ballgame now. And the money that's coming in and the, and the coaches' salaries start <clears throat> excuse me, escalating, people start thinking the players need to be paid. Well, they should have been getting maybe more than they were getting, but everybody just looks at the top level. They don't look at the whole game. And you can say, well, nobody gives a rat what PC and uh, Norine are doing on Saturday, except the people that went to school there. And that's okay if you don't want to pull a farm or care what they're doing. But I think there's a lot going to be lost by all this. And it's not going to be just schools that side. It's going to be a group of five schools that are going to start deteriorating because they can't keep up with this mess. Uh, and these players do need and deserve, with the money coming in into football, they deserve a part of it, but it could have been thought out a lot better. And it wouldn't be, We would, I was chatting with some of the coaches up there at Clemson the other day, and most of them just, you know, not in the administrative roles, not on the field. And we were talking about how it used to be when, when a lot of these things were going on in recruiting, but you had to have somebody out 
in the neighborhood doing it for you because it was illegal. And we laughed and said, yeah, it was more fun back then. And one <laughs> said, except when you lost the player, it wasn't a, a bit of fun. But it's, now it's all out in the open. If you can pay a player more, 90% of the time you're going to get him. He's not going to come because he likes your system or he likes your campus or he likes your national championships you want. He wants to know what you're going to pay. 18, 19 years old, what are you going to pay me? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's not immoral, but it's, it's illogical. It's stupid. And it's going to come back. It's a cancer that is going to rot college football in from the inside out if they don't get control of it. But I, I don't blame the coaches or the players one bit for it because they didn't create it. They're stuck in the middle of it. I have a theory I want to try out on you <clears throat> as we talk about this sort of this new era, chaotic era, whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, in 2008, Dabo, when he took over as coach, his pitch to Terry Don Phillips was, hey, pay me the lowest salary in college football, or hell, don't pay me anything unless devote the money that you would have paid me, basically the difference between Tommy Bowden's salary and what Dabo would be making. Let's allocate that to, 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 to coaches and staff so I can really fill out my staff with, with strong coaches and maybe some facilities as well. And then when we start winning big, then pay me what I'm worth. My theory or my feeling right now is that the $11, $12 million salaries in the age of player compensation, that's out of whack in terms of, um, you know, the labor force, so to speak, and the how important talent procurement is. So my theory is the next Dabo in terms of the next the, the, the next cutting edge approach would be a coach who's not proven sort of pitching to his athletic director, hey, pay me $500,000 and let's take that other $4 million and devote it to paying players. So we can, I guess, let's get a general manager like NFL style and let's build out that part of it because that's where the, that's how you win. If, if that's part of the game, then, then to me at least, the approach could conceivably be a coach wanting to get paid less. I don't know if many coaches do want to get paid less in these, in this day and age, but do you see where I'm going with that? Does that make any sense at all to you? Yeah. Well, sure it does. And it's kind of in a, in a more eloquent way. You're describing what I think is going to happen in college football. If they don't figure this out. It's going to be worse than the NFL. It's going to be an NFL uh, environment. And the fact that you got to put players first and go out and buy them, but every school is going to be able to do it. And right now they don't have contracts and they don't have owners and they don't have parity and they don't have any kind of uh, con uh, consistency. Uh, when they try to meet and decide things, nobody can agree on them. So they create the NCAA to come up with rules that across the board will keep everybody on the same playing field. They're the very same people that feel like we needed in the NCAA. They destroy them by, you know, just, completely say, well, you, we're not going to do what the NCAA says. We're going to do what the law says. Then you got 50 different states passing laws about it. Uh, you know, you just, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Either run it on a business model, get the antitrust exemption that like the NFL gets, get some parity in it, 
and get some control over how much you can give these kids. And you say, well, that's not that's not legal. You can't limit them. You can you don't you can't limit them on what they go out and find individually, but you can put a limit on what these schools are giving them through these trust funds. And and something's got to be done. Or like I said, you're gonna have about fifteen or twenty schools having a party for the next twenty years, and the rest of them are gonna be back kind of where they used to be back in the sixties. It's just inevitable. Anybody with any common sense, and there are a lot of people smarter than me that are running this thing, and if they don't see it, I don't know what they're looking at. Uh, one thing that was lost in all that, though, I, I don't know if Clemson will ever, ever know what Terry Don Phillips did for that place. I don't know if he had clairvoyance or ESP, but his decisions, some personnel decisions, mainly Dabo, and, and his uh, steadfast leadership on the wheel. You remember he lost to Clemson. I mean, excuse me, lost to Carolina with the first four years of the first five. Well, Dabo but during that time. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether it was Dabo, four or five years. In a row. Dabo won as an interim in 08, beat South Carolina, but then lost five straight. Right. But Terry Don Phillips didn't wait yep. because he saw the recruiting. He saw the overall performance of the teams, the condition of it, the behavioral aspect, and all the on the field, off the field, and all that. And I don't know where they got all this money for these facilities, but when I was up there, uh, our indoor facility was a livestock arena. I forgot the <laughs> name of it. You know, we went over and tried that one time. We had, we had to do walkthroughs in Jeremy Gym, and, and you couldn't get the plane when you needed it and uh, to go recruiting except during signing week. I mean, there's just a lot of things, and I don't know what changed and when it changed and where they found all these these uh, money bags, but it's always been some of it there, and it wasn't cultivated or something. But I just cannot say enough about what I think he did, and there may have been somebody else behind the scenes, but, and I, I don't know whether Dabo would tell you the same thing or not, but that's my opinion. <clears throat> but I, I do think you kind of hit it on the head. Right now, it's headed to the point where somebody at some point is going to have to. The reason these schools can't hire somebody like Dabo is because, first of all, they don't have the stones that Terry Don Phillips had. But second of all, you go to the market and you find out who the five to ten best coaches are, and they and these agents convince you that somebody's going to give them ten million for eight years down the road, and if you want him, you got to give him twelve million for eight years. And you get caught up in the market, the competitive market, and you pay to get the coach that's proven. But if you if you hire Davo these days, the first bad thing that happens, all the money people want to come in and fire you. Not only fire him, they want to fire you too. And so they're all getting to be a slave and a captive of money. And money's good. Now, you got to have money to do anything. But if you put money first and foremost and you chase money, 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 and you get blinders on about all the other aspects that are important, you end up in a bad place. And that's kind of what's going on, in my opinion, on the college level right now. You know, the coaching salaries is awfully funny or depressing maybe. The two uh, the, the two figures who most recently drove the market up, way up for head coaches is guess who? Mel Tucker and Jimbo Fisher. Yeah, and who would have known? You didn't have a crystal ball. I think Jimbo right. Fisher, I, I still think he's one of the best coaches that I've 
coached against in college football. For some reason, it wasn't working there. Uh, I don't know what it was. It was personal personnel. Was it uh, staff? Was it other decisions? Or you just don't know. But it wasn't working there. But you know, he's a proven successful football coach, and he still wasn't worth that kind of money. But they had to pay that to keep him because some agent convinced him the LSU was going to give it to him. Uh, back to your your question, you, you you said I don't know where the all that money came from the for the facilities at Clemson around the time that in Dabo's early years. My theory is, and again, I want to try this out on you because you you, uh, you have a, a a really good feel for it. Of course, my theory has always been it was losing to South Carolina. Those because even back to back losses in '09 and '10. That was like the apocalypse at Clemson. That had never that hadn't been done since the early seventies, I believe. And so then you have South Carolina at the time is in the SEC and the revenue disparities were growing then. And so there was this fear on Clemson's end of, oh my God, South Carolina is gonna just take off and leave us behind. And I really believe, looking back, that that had a major uh, that was a major driver of Clemson, um, a lot of their donors whipping out more money and, and spending and, and investing in getting Clemson, um, you know, on more, uh, on more even playing field resource-wise. Uh, you see, do yeah. you agree with that? Well, you may be totally right. I know, I know being in a Clemson, Clemson family, my dad's talking about a little bit and everything. The first thing that drove it to to become as strong as it was, and it was way ahead of most other schools in the concept. I don't know about the financial resources, but they lost to the Citadel one year. And a bunch of their administrators slash leaders or whatever got together after that, and they said, we're not going to have this. This is not happening. And it wasn't that much difference in the two schools back. My dad graduated in 1937. Clemson was an all-male military institution. And I, I think the guys, some of my buddies who went to school there in 1970 was the first class that didn't have to do mandatory ROTC for two years. So and there's a lot of things about it, you know, in the history of it. But I, I say that as an example. When, when Clemson people have a situation where something's not going well, they don't go sit around and talk about it for six months. They attack it. And that's just the culture of the place. And you'd say, well, everybody does that. Well, I've been a lot of places and they don't. So that's true. And so you may be exactly right. But every time I go up there and see my friends and my buddies, I look around all these buildings and they got names on them. And (laughs) hell, I don't even know who they are. And I worked there for three years and I grew up in a Clemson family. I don't know who these people are. And I'm thinking, we could have used some of that money back in the 90s. You know, maybe we'd have got out of mediocrity. But, you know, it just, I, I think it's a, certainly a, a and, but it's a chicken and the egg, too. I think one reason people unload in their pockets is because Davo was, was what the job he was doing and the direction of the program. And he kind of gave him a little taste of it. And so then it caught on fire. But, uh, yeah, there are people's names on buildings up there, and I don't even know who they are. I, I, I got to hear more about the livestock arena. You're talking in the mid-90s, y'all, y'all actually practiced in a livestock arena? We tried it. 
I think it lasted for about 40 minutes. <laughs> this was the one in Pendleton? We had, a, we had a big game. I don't know who it was. And we've gone uh, two days in the Jervy Gym, which nobody probably knows where that is anymore. And I think it's the volleyball arena now. And we basically all we could do is walk through in tennis shoes and, and pads. I had to be careful not to get somebody hurt. We knew we weren't getting good preparation. Somebody brought it up. And I don't know who thought it was a good idea, but you know, if you went, if you drove by it, you would say that'd be a good place for an indoor arena. But there, it had a dirt floor, okay. And so, Root Jones, who was in charge of facilities back then, he t- he goes in there and, and rolls the thing, trying to pack it down, so we get off the buses. <laughs> And get ready to go in there and practice. He's rolling the dirt floor, trying to make it hard. <laughs> we go in there and try it, and it lasted about 30 minutes. And Tommy called everybody together and said, what do y'all think? I said, I think if this gets out on the internet, you can forget <laughs> the signing class. <laughs> not, plus, there's no telling what was in that dirt. I mean, it's a livestock arena, okay? It wasn't where they held the Miss South Carolina contest. It's a livestock arena, and we're practicing in that dirt. <laughs> so it didn't last long. And I get down there, and I see that beautiful indoor facility, and I'm thinking, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, now they have nap rooms and barber shops and all kinds of things. Yeah, well, I, and all that's good eye candy for recruiting, but there's nothing wrong with you know putting it in there. It doesn't help winning, but it helps get players, and that helps winning. You said a minute ago when Clemson folks set their mind to something and something bothers them, they do something about it, and that's the part of their culture, and you mentioned not all cultures are like that. I'm curious, if, in this state, of course you have Clemson fans think Gamecock fans are inbred rednecks who you know who, who can't add one plus one. Gamecock fans think Clemson fans are inbred rednecks who can't add one plus one. It's kind of always fascinated me because we're in a state of five million people, often, quite often, more often than not, families that have both Clemson and Carolina fans uh, in their ranks. And so it doesn't totally make sense to say, uh, you know, one fan base is, is, uh, you know, a subspecies. It's it's kind of funny. Just I guess that's just what rivalries are made of. But I'm just curious from your perspective, what are the, some of the differences between the cultures, the fan bases at these two schools? I think 90% of what you're talking about is all, you know, it's just all spitball and, and uh, snowball fights. You know, it's just people making up stuff kind of as a cheerleader type thing. And it's comedy. Uh, they both are really good academic institutions in certain fields. And they both have some things, you know, where an average student can get through. Uh, they, they both, you know, are basically demographically leaning on the same population and uh, for support and for uh, student base. And, of course, they go out of state for students as well as athletes. So, you know, I just don't buy into all that. I, and I coached at Auburn and Alabama, too. And of course, you know, Auburn were the farmers and Alabama were the rednecks or whatever. Uh, it's just that's just typical rivalry stuff. Uh, but South Carolina, the state of South Carolina, they're two pretty impressive institutions. And if you look at what they accomplished, 
in the athletic realm on the NCAA level with the demographics of our state is pretty phenomenal. And it's just, you know, it's kind of more of a reflection of South Carolinians and their attitude about competitiveness and, and pride and taking, you know, pride in their institutions and pride in a lot of things. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't get into all that. You know, Clemson, Clemson's a bunch of farmers and South Carolina's a bunch of corrupt politicians. So, you know, let's move on to the next thing. It's all a bunch of, uh, you know, it's just kind of all a bunch of rivalry, cheerleading type stuff. It's pretty much we're all the same people. Everybody's pretty in this in this small of a state. It's pretty much the same, same. Uh, yeah, same. I mean, we we know all the all the extremely distinguished graduates of this state went to the Citadel. <laughs> hey, I want to go back to when Dabo took over. You were you had uh, had you just taken a job at South Carolina, or you had been there for a year when he called you up and, and wanted to bring you to Clemson? Can we can we dig into that uh, story? Yeah, I, I don't mind talking about it this far late. And, I, and be honest with you, I may say something that's not true in Dabo's mind, so I don't want to get too deep into it. Sure. I don't I don't really know, but it was uh, – we were very close. We were good friends. He played when I coached at Alabama, and I left and came to Clemson for three years. And then when I went back, he was on the staff, and we worked together for four years. And and so we were good friends. And had, I, I hope it was mutual, but I had great respect for him as a person and as a coach. And, and I hope it was reciprocal. But what happened, I came to South Carolina, one of the main things I, I came for, number one, it was home. Number two, Steve Spurrier. And I knew we could win there if, if, with Steve Spurrier. Number three uh, is I, I've had a bunch of years in the state of South Carolina already, and I wanted to coach there as long as I could. And I actually needed three years in state employment, and I'd be vested. And I thought, well, that's a no-brainer. So the one thing I asked them is they would guarantee me a three-year contract. And I said, you know, even if Coach Spurrier decides to get out of coaching, I've got a, I've got that contract. If you want to put me over sweeping the gym floor or whatever, I've got three years. And so I, I got that, but Eric Hyman was athletic director. He said, it's got to be a two-way street. And I said, no problem. So I signed a contract that had a full buyout. And I think I was making about three fifty a year. Can you believe that? <laughs> that was a lot of money <laughs> back people, then. It wasn't really. I was probably down the bottom half the SEC as a coordinator. But it, it was – it was prime, okay? But I'm, that's why I signed that contract. We go through the very first year, and Coach Spurrier was rumored to be in the Auburn job. And, I mean, it was it, it was some smoke around there. I don't know if it was true or not true, but they were, there was somebody over there working him, trying to get him. And I'm thinking, I've come here for these three years, and, and now he's going to leave. I didn't want to leave South Carolina. But during that time, of course, they fired Tommy Bowden. Uh, they're in turmoil up there. They give it to Dabo. I have a real close friend. I'm going to say who it was. There's a man who used to, go, he used to walk in the evenings with Terry Don. And I knew exactly who Terry Don was going, was going to hire. Well, one, one night after practice, one of my a relative who was close, real close to a board member at Clemson, I'm not going to tell any of these names, 
they said, come by the house. We want to talk to you. So I would go over there, and they're asking me, you know, what's going on? I said, I don't know. I said, I just know Auburn's trying, trying to hire him. And I said, I have no clue. He said, why don't you go to Clemson? I said, yeah. I said, you just, you just pick up and go when you want to go, huh? And he just laughed. But I told him, I said, guys, look, Terry Downs going to hire Dabo Sweeney. And they said, how do you know? And I said, I'll just tell him, y'all know. I'll bet you $100. And there's a board member sitting there, and he doesn't know that. <laughs> and uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't against it, but he was going to actually try to help me get Clemson, either get an interview for the job or get on the staff somehow or something. And, and we just we, we had a little chat, and I let it go. So the next thing you know, we go up there and play him three weeks later. They win the ball game, and they go ahead and give Dabo the job. Well, we still have a little turmoil down there because we got killed at Florida, and we uh, and we lose to Clemson, but we're going to the Outback Bowl, and it's still the chatter won't stop, and I'm scared to death Coach Spurrier's leaving, and so it, the dialogue got started, but it was having I was having to do it through a third party, and I, I was just trying to tell him if he's here, I can't leave unless you have. What's three times three fifty? <laughs> Whatever that is. It was almost a million dollar yeah. buyout. They would have to pay me before they even paid me. And Terry Don just told him, said, it ain't going to happen, Dabba. And and I think that somebody told me, he told me, he said, I just five things I need, and that's one of them. So if I can't hire him, you just you go ahead and give the job to somebody else. Now, I don't know if that happened, so don't, <laughs> don't say that. Maybe Dabo can tell you his version of it. But it was a it was a tumultuous like a month of all this stuff going back and forth. And I know some of it would be true because of the folks I was talking to. Some of the rest of it I don't know, you know, if it actually was true. I would love to have gone to work with him and would have gone, you know, any time except I wanted to stay at South Carolina and I wanted Steve Spurrier to stay at South Carolina. I didn't have control of Steve Spurrier. And if he left then I didn't want to be at Carolina. I wanted to be at Clemson, but I had no control over all of it. Just curious, when you're a, an assistant and your coach, your head coach, your boss is being bandied around for a while for another job, is it kosher in general to say, hey, coach, can I get a feel for for whether you might be taking this seriously? Um, and is it was it different with Spurrier where you just didn't ask him that type of thing? No, I mean it would it would be very common if you ask us, you know, coach, is you know, can you share anything with me? But I, I think most of theirs was uh, it, it was not coming from sort of like a board of trustees meeting, or they certainly weren't going to interview him. If you hire Steve Spurry, you just call him and ask him if he's interested in the job and see if you can come to terms. You don't interview him, uh, and I think that. Whoever that knucklehead was in Florida that wanted him to come back after the pros, wanted him to come down and interview. And the first, the first thing I would have said, if you think you've got to interview Steve Spurrier, then I don't want to work for you. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's not uncommon. I mean, it just depends on the amount of information that's truly out there. Most coaches would tell the staff. There's some, some talk about me going to such and such. I would be interested. But if anything's legit, I'll let y'all know. Y'all be the first to know. I mean, I don't, I, you know, other times 
there's so much going on with agents now, Larry, that nobody really knows what's going on. Texas A&M could have their coach a month ago, or they may still be looking in three weeks. But you probably won't ever know the exact truth. And you may have some good sources that will tell you something, and it turns out to be totally wrong. But it's all being done with agents and ADs now. And and so all the chitty chat, it just depends on who your source is and whether they've got the real story. You were with Shane Beamer in Starkville. Uh, I don't know how many years. I think several, right? Um, how close were you all then? Uh, oh, go three, ahead. Three, three years, yeah. Three years. How close were you all then? How yeah. close have you all been through the years? And how close are you now? Well, we, we was good friends. I, I hardly knew Shane when we first came to the to the staff at Mississippi State. <clears throat> and we came in at the same time with Coach Croon. But I knew who he was because I, his dad coached me at Citadel. And not positionally, but he was one of our defensive coaches when I played at the Citadel. And I've always thought the world of him. Uh, he was one of my favorite coaches ever. And uh, so, I, I mean, I knew the Beavers. But I'd never, I don't know if I'd ever met Shane. And uh, knew who he was so forth. But So we coached those three years. And actually the first year, uh, he and I coached secondary. He had the corners and I took the three safeties uh, and, and, uh, and coordinated and then he moved. He moved to over oh, to running backs, I think, for one season before he left. But he actually went to South Carolina before I did. Yep. And uh, Coach Furry hired him. And so then, 2007, we went to the uh, Liberty Bowl, beat Central Florida, and then that's when I ended up at Carolina. And and he was on the defensive staff already, and I'd worked with him and. Uh, but that was, it was really kind of funny. I came in and had to just take the staff. Coach didn't tell me I could bring anybody. But I had Ron Cooper, Brad Lowing, and Shane Beamer. And I had worked with all three of those guys before. I knew them very well. And all three of them were really good football coaches. And so we worked together, I guess, three years before we went to Virginia Tech. And uh, he was there four years. I was there four years. But we overlapped three years. How how similar are he and Dabo in sort of their personas, how they lead, uh, the culture they instill, and just their overall approach to to leading programs? It's you know it's a, it's a good question, but I wouldn't be a good source. I was not around those guys when they were leading anything. True. One was coaching. One was coaching wide receivers, and the other one was coaching uh, safeties or corners. And they wouldn't have in positions of leadership uh, or even coordinators. Uh, now, when I was at South Carolina, one of those seasons or two, <coughs> excuse me, Shane took over the special teams. So he, he was a special teams coordinator. And I think it was uh, the second, third year I was there. I can't remember exactly. But, uh, you know, I think probably uh, they developed a lot of their skills or or football coaching abilities or qualities, if you will, after we worked together. I could, you know, somebody asked me the question the other day, said, when you were working with those guys, could you tell they were going to be a head coach one day? I don't know what that means. I've worked with 100,000 guys that I thought would be great head coaches one day. Uh, I've worked with some guys that I thought would be out of the profession in two or three weeks because <laughs> they don't work hard. And, they, you know, they're not grinders, and that's what it takes. But, 
I really wasn't around them at that time of their career. What do you make of this matchup? I assume you've watched enough of these two teams this year um, to get somewhat of a feel for for what you think might happen and what some of the some of the key things to watch are on Saturday night. Yeah, well, doing these little radio things and other stuff, I do. I, I have to kind of keep up with stuff. It, it would be it would surprise you how little college football I actually watch, and it's very hard unless you want to record things and watch them over the weekend or something. I just don't do that. Uh, I try to flip around, watch games. I study statistics. And, you know, if I hadn't seen a team in a couple of weeks, I try to watch them on a particular third week. But when you've got a son at a school and you want to go up and see him and any home games, they dress out. And I'll usually go. Other weeks, they're traveling somewhere and he's not going. I went up and see him during the week, get a chance to watch a little practice. But, you know, just you just look at the overall seasons, and uh, I think Clemson, obviously, is a better football team overall. You know, they have a better talent base, if you will. They have not played up to their, their uh, talent level because of just turnovers early on. They've been a lot better with that lately. Their defense can be phenomenal. And, and, and when they're on, on track, they can be totally dominant and destructive. Offensively, if they take care of the ball, they're hard to stop. they got good backs. they got good receivers. they got a good quarterback. they got a good offensive line. Good, good, good. Not great. I mean, nobody's really been great yet. I think the running backs are, are very close to that. You know, South Carolina, on the other hand, has is, is struggled. And I just the thing that's been – terrible for them and it hasn't just been this year is injuries and they may not have any more injuries than other other teams but it seems like it's critical players and sometimes it's at critical times if you lose a player you'd rather lose him at the end of a game or maybe the first week first day of practice you don't want to lose him the first series of a game he's the guy you put all the work in during the week and now he's gone the first series uh the best linebacker's been hurt twice, two years in a row. He hadn't played three total games. Uh, just things of that nature. I think Spencer Rattler is as good as anybody that will be on the field that day at his position. He's carried a huge load. He's taken care of the ball for the most part. He's got no running game to help him. Uh, the protection's been better, but it was hard because all of this, the different lineups they had in the offensive line because of in, injuries. Uh, you know, if both teams come in and play well, Clemson will win by 10 points. But in that game and at night at South Carolina Stadium, you can't you can't count on that happening. Uh, there may be some turnovers. There may be some other things that happen. I think Clemson hopefully and, and they better be prepared for the noise on offense. It's a very difficult place to play. One of our quarterbacks from Alabama, Freddie Kitchens, uh, he told me one time it was the loudest stadium he ever played in. And he played for us in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And he'd been in some loud stadiums. I mean, he'd been in a bunch of loud stadiums. And he said that was the loudest stadium he ever tried to operate in. And it it, it is loud. I mean, I, I never was out of the press box when I coached in South Carolina. I was always up in the box. But it will be a, a factor in that game. If Clemson has some sputters and turns the ball over early in the game and gets that crowd 
keeps them in it, they're going to have a hard time. If they if they come out and control the ball and put points up, get take the ball off South Carolina, you know, if it's a 10 to 14 point game at halftime, it may not be a good game. But I wouldn't begin to try to predict this game because both teams have been less than consistent. Ellis, that is all I have, but um, I can't thank you enough for making this a part of your uh, very busy media interview tour this week. Well, it's always a lot of fun. I enjoy talking football, and and uh, you know a lot of background, and especially with some of my Clemson days and everything. I read, It was fun. I was the, in the three short years I was at Clemson, Coach Howard passed away at his funeral, and Bob Fulton, who was a long-time boss of the Gamecocks. He called his last game on radio at Clemson the, the last year I was there. And it just – there was some really uh, fun moments there. But uh, South Carolina, some great years there. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't think they'll ever be duplicated. I don't know if they'll ever know what Steve Spurrier did there. And uh, those, especially those last five seasons. And, and so – Overall, it was really, really fun times at both places. I've always said, you know, I, I spent six years coaching high school in South Carolina, was born and raised, and never played, played outside of South Carolina as a player. And I always hoped Carolina Clemson come into that game undefeated. You know, that was just kind of my attitude about it. I don't favor either team from the standpoint of success or failure or anything. But it's always fun to talk about it. Well, hey, looking forward to watching Charlie over the next few years. Definitely pulling for him. So um, I'm sure you're looking forward to it too. But much thanks to you, Coach. Thanks, Larry. Awesome, awesome stuff. Got to make a point to talk to this guy more regularly. Just uh, so much institutional knowledge and so many great stories, including the practice inside of a livestock arena. I had never heard that. Just priceless stuff. Appreciate the support of our sponsors for continuing to make this happen. And also thanks to every one of you for hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers.